worldview definition each week. They all have parallels, similarities, and so on. Um, but this is one from Clyde Audio, who is with Answers in Genesis. And here's what he says. He says, a person's worldview, whether it be Christian, humanist, or whatever is a, per- or whatever is a personal insight about meaning and reality. It is how a person interprets through his or her own eyes a personal belief about the world. A person's worldview tries to give reasons for how the facts of reality relate and tie together. The summation of those facts provides the big picture into which the daily events of a person's life should fit. It is from this worldview that an individual derives an understanding, interpretation, and response to the world in which he or she lives. To each individual, their own worldview should provide a coherent, but not necessarily authoritative, and the reason he says that is because it's in the sense of um, our perspective and our opinions and things that feed into it, um, and their manner in thinking about their world. An individual's worldview will be shaped by far more than the surrounding physical world. Religion, philosophy, ethics, morality, science, politics, and all other belief systems that impact on that individual will play a role in shaping a worldview. So an individual's worldview is his or her basis for answering such questions as, who am I? Uh, Where did I come from? Uh, Where am I going? What is true and what is false? How should I conduct my life or how should I act? And does God exist? And if so, what is my response to him? Now, just by way of a brief review of what we have studied so far, uh, we've looked at how a biblical worldview answers six key questions that overlap with the ones that I just read, but basically speaking to origin of the world and humanity, identity and who we are, having been created in the image of God, chaos that came because of sin when sin came into the world, purpose, morality, and then destiny that centers on a relationship with Jesus Christ if we're hopeful for heaven. Then we looked at the doctrine of general revelation and the doctrine of special revelation, general revelation being what we can observe with our eyes, the creation around us, uh, the things that we can look at and see that uh, they came from somewhere. And then the doctrine of special revelation being the written word of God and then the living word of God in Jesus. Then we focused on a meta narrative and how critical thinking fits into that, a theology and the study uh, of the nature of God. And then we looked at a lot of other ologies epistemology, ontology, uh, teleology, cosmology, axiology, and then finally uh, praxeology. Now, one thing that we've emphasized again and again in this study is that everybody has a worldview. It just depends on where your worldview is formed from, what it's based on, and everybody believes in something. And because everybody believes in something, it may be irreligious or it may be a focus on the God of the Bible. Because everybody believes in something, then their actions are going to follow their beliefs. One of the things that I know to be true is that many people have never really evaluated what they believe. They hold to certain things, maybe because of personal opinion or preferences in their life or experiences they've had. There's a whole host of reasons why people hold to things, but they don't necessarily think critically about what they believe. 
And that's one of the things we've already talked about is the importance of being able to think critically about what we believe. Jimmy Williams from Probe International Ministry said this about theism. As we begin, he said, Theism is a reasonable idea. While not proving the existence of God, it does provide insight into what may be used to show evidence of his existence. Uh, and then the flip side of that is uh, Herbert Spencer, who was an agnostic, and he once pointed out that no bird ever flew out of the heavens and therefore concluded that man cannot know God. Now, I'm not satisfied with such a simplistic understanding as that, uh, but that was his position as an agnostic. So let's think first about theism and what theism is, and I'm going to shift quickly from the broader category of theism to monotheism and what it means that we follow the one true living God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Theism believes that reality's ultimate principle is God, and he is an omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere God who is the ground of everything that there is. So when we talk about theism, theism holds that the existence and continuation of the universe is dependent on a supreme being. And that supreme being, from a biblical theism perspective, is the God of the Bible. He is distinct from his creation. He's over and above his creation, but yet he's involved in his creation. Michael DeWalt said, Christian theism is the belief of one God who is the creator of all things, who's existed always before time, who has all things to do with all things that pass throughout all of time, who should receive all the glory due him, which intercedes constantly with his creation. So to say that you're a theist, just generally speaking, is to believe in at least a God or the reality of a deity. Theism ranges from monotheism, which is what I'm going to emphasize, to polytheism, which is a belief in multiple gods, to deism, which is the belief of an uninvolved God who created and then put things into motion, but then is hands off, pantheism, which believes that God is in everything and everything is God. So that would be an idea that like a tree would be God, which of course we would not agree with. Um, so it ranges when you just use the word theism. Monotheism is the belief in one true living God who is the creator, the sustainer, and the judge of all creation. Now, the word monotheism is actually a relatively new word as far as language goes. Um, it was coined in the mid-17th century. Uh, it comes from the Greek words monos, which is single, and then theos, which is God. And Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all monotheistic religions, but with clear differences. Um, and I'll reference that here in, in just a moment. And I want to show you, first of all, in your outline there, that there is biblical support for monotheism. And I want to look to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want us to think about what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says as it relates to who God is and then how our response to him uh, should be. So Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, and I'll read through verse 9, it says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. Um, in Hebrew, these verses are known as the Shema, um, or uh, a word that means basically to hear. Um, it's a confession of faith, a proclamation of what we have heard from God, describing who He is and what our posture toward Him should be. So you'll note here that the Scripture says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a very straightforward presentation of who God is. Uh, he cannot be represented by anything that is contradictory. And the one is the proper emphasis. Now, I read somewhere that in Jewish synagogues, they would actually say this together, and they would emphasize the nature of one, that there's one God, that he alone is. And that would be what they would focus on. And we know from a Christian perspective, and of course Christianity being the fulfillment of Judaism, with Jesus himself, of course, being a Jew. And the statement, the Lord is one, does not contradict what we understand to be the Trinity. Uh, the Hebrew word for one that is used here literally refers to a compound unity instead of the Hebrew word that means uh, singularity. It's important to note, I think, as well, that the same word is used back in Genesis 1 and verse 5. In the account of creation, it says, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So we see in that a unity, one day, with a plurality, with that one day being comprised of evening and morning, but it's still the one day. Genesis 2 and verse 24 uses the word to express uh, the marital relationship, the two shall become one flesh. So again, we've got the idea of unity, which is one flesh, making a plurality, which is two. The word used for God in Deuteronomy 6 is Elohim. And the verbs and the pronouns used are generally in the plural. So Elohim is used in the creation account and in the expression of people being made in the image of God. So you remember the phrase in the creation account, let us make man in our image. So we have the same concept that, that's kind of building up to this point. And Martin Luther said, we have a clear testimony that Moses aimed to indicate that the Trinity or the three persons of the Trinity are one in divine nature. So the Bible teaches the concept of the Trinity and our understanding of the Trinity at its most basic level is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal and co-eternal, one in essence and three in person. And this is who God is and this is what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, monotheism. Now, one of the things I told you a few weeks back when we were talking about the Trinity on one of the other lessons is that you've got to be careful with any analogy about the Trinity. People have tried all kinds of analogies, especially when it relates to children's uh, Sunday school and Bible school and other things, and they think, oh, I've got a great analogy, and I'm going to use this so it helps people understand what the Trinity is. Well, they all fall short 
in some measure, uh, some more than others. Some are more heretical than others, actually, depending on what the uh, analogy is. But there is some attempt in church history in particular uh, to explain uh, the Trinity. And uh, Anselm said, God is like the spring that flows into the stream that flows into the lake. Tertullian said, God is like a plant with the Father as the deep root, the Son as the shoot that breaks into the earth, and the Spirit who flowers forth to spread beauty and grace. St. Augustine said that God is a trinity of love, means that God is the lover, the beloved, and love itself all at the same time. And sometimes when you start talking about the fact that the uh, idea of monotheism has a biblical foundation to it, people say, well, that's just a circular argument. You're arguing from the Bible for the Bible. Well, in a sense, that's true, but if we believe the Bible's the Word of God, then we're going to draw truth from it. So it's not the issue of what you're arguing from the Bible as to whether or not it's true. You've got to take a step further back, and you've got to say, either the Bible itself is true, or it's not, and then that changes everything. So if we believe it to be true, we're going to draw temporal and eternal truths from what we believe to be true, what can be trusted. If we don't think it's true, then there's not much of a discussion after that until God changes our hearts and we receive it by faith. The Scripture says also here in Deuteronomy 6 that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. This will be familiar to you, of course. This is the foundation of the great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the idea is that understanding who God is should guide us to act rightly toward God and toward others. So there's biblical support for monotheism, but I would say there's also historical support for monotheism, which I just touched on a moment ago. When you think about the main religions of the world, uh, that are contradictory to one another in, in many ways, uh, there is a predominant view of a monotheistic God who is personal, who has knowledge and power, who's the supreme creator, he has morality in his being, and then if we take it to the Christian gospel, we're going to say that he's the one who provides the way for reconciliation so that we can be forgiven and be right with him. The monotheism of Judaism began in ancient Israel with the adoption of Yahweh as the single object of worship and then the rejection of other tribes and nations. But you remember the record in the scripture in the Old Testament, how much trouble they had with that? They would, they would get focused, they'd be worshiping God, and then they had difficulty maintaining those convictions and they were surrounded, after all, by polytheistic nations, and as a result of that, they had a lot of trouble keeping up with it. Um, but monotheism ha has been uh, taught historically as the main position of the Christian church. So it's theism with the specifics of monotheism. And then I would say there's philosophical support for monotheism. These arguments argue uh, from the negative, so think, I want you to track with me on this. First, if there were more than one God, and these multiple gods were supreme beings, so to speak, 
then the universe would be in chaos because there would be multiple creators. There would be multiple authorities. And that doesn't make logical or philosophical sense. Second, uh, God is a perfect being, and it wouldn't be plausible for there to be more than one perfect being from our perspective of God. Third, God is infinite in his existence, and he cannot have parts because if his existence is not just a part of him, then he must have an infinite existence. And multiple infinite beings uh, would have to differ from one another from a philosophical standpoint. So Christianity has the effect of making sense of the world around us. Theism teaches that there's a personal God who created the universe. And we talked already about the argument from uh, first cause. You remember the argument that's the cosmological argument or the argument from cosmology? And if something exists, it has to have either come from something or it has to have come from nothing or it has to have always existed. Those are your options. And scientists, for example, confirm that the universe has a beginning. So so to say the universe comes from nothing defies scientific inquiry and human logic. Everything comes from, from something. And the Bible teaches that what came in the universe was out of nothing, but with God as the source. So he didn't just take stuff. Like if we go and build a house or we build a building of some description, um, we can't make the materials that we're going to construct the structure with. We've got to take things that have already been made. We've got to go to the lumber yard, and we've got to have somebody bring the, the uh, stuff for the concrete. We've got to have somebody bring the wiring. And it's been made somewhere, but it didn't get made out of nothing. It got made with things that were. God took nothing and made everything. And he is the, the ultimate cause. Uh, there's the argument from design as well, the tele- teleological argument that we've talked about, where complexity and design point to a designer. And I would argue that the more we know about the universe, the more we realize it couldn't have happened by accident. It couldn't have just rolled out there and then it was, or rolled out there over uh, billions of years. The moral argument states that all people have a sense of right and wrong. So if everybody's got a sense of right and wrong, even far-flung cultures that may not be accurate about their sense of right and wrong, but they still have a sense of right and wrong, where'd they get that from? They got it because a moral code comes from a moral lawgiver. And he is personal, and this moral law reflects the one who gave it in his character. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So you see the line of reasoning that he uses there, that he can see the world and he can see the problems, he can see the evil, he can see the pain, he can see the suffering, and he wonders how could that be if there's a just God that these unjust things could happen. And then it occurred to him, How did I even know what just or unjust was without a concept of God? The Bible is the word of God. Jesus confirmed the claims of the Bible. When he was crucified and rose from the dead, it was authentication of 
who he was as the Messiah and the message that he was bringing. So I would say that the idea of theism is especially relevant today. While we believe that there's one God to worship and everything else is idols, there are people who are chasing after the gods of power and pleasure and possessions and prominence and other people. And constantly these things are are pressing for our attention. They're, They're pulling us in for our allegiance. And if we're not careful, our eyes can easily shift off the one true living God to something else that ultimately is an idol. Tim Keller said, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. God called Abraham in a land that was surrounded by other gods, and he asked him to step out on faith. And when we think about biblical faith, biblical faith is saying yes to God, even when everything else and everyone else around you seems to pull you in a different direction. And the story of monotheism in the Old Testament is the story of God's relentless pursuit of his creation and of the relationship with his people. And I'd say to you today that that pursuit continues today, that God's the primary mover God's the main pursuer. He loves those he has made and created. And because he loves us, he wants us to know him and to have a relationship with him. That's theism in in, uh, its essence and specifically how we would relate to God as the monotheistic God through the good news of the gospel. Now let's talk about naturalism in the time that we have remaining. Naturalism is the belief that All that exists is physical, material matter. Now, there are a few streams that run into this, and I don't have time to parse all those out in this particular lesson. But the idea of naturalism is that there there is no supernatural. um, There is no creator. There is only uh, an evolutionary process. That we as human beings are a complex collection of neurons And we are nothing more than any of the other animals. The laws of nature are all that matter in the strictest sense in this worldview. Since there is no belief in God, since there's nothing supernatural, naturalism concludes that the earth is the only world that matters. There's not an ultimate spiritual reality of heaven or hell. People are physical animals and that's it. We're no different than any other beast in the field. And um, it, it's a totally opposite perspective of a supernatural uh, biblical worldview. Uh, John Hote said, only nature, including humans and our creations, is real, that God does not exist, and that science alone can give us complete and reliable knowledge of reality. That's the basics of naturalism. Now for our other scripture tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 14. This will be a familiar one to many of you, but... I want us to look at uh, Psalm 14, primarily verse 1, but I'll read a couple more verses here when I get there. So if you want to join me, turn in your Bibles. Here's what Psalm 14 says, beginning in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. 
all have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David's the writer here, King David. He looks at those who denied the existence of God and would deny the existence of God today. And he comes to a rather harsh conclusion. But I want us to think specifically about what this word for fool means. The idea behind this ancient Hebrew word translated as fool is uh, from the perspective of more moral than it is intellectual. And what I mean by that is that David did not have in mind those who were not smart enough to figure God out. Um, Nobody's that smart ultimately because his ways are not our ways. But he had in mind simply those who reject God for whatever reason. Just because they don't want to deal with him or they don't believe it's plausible or whatever the reason might be, these are the people that he's speaking of. And literally we could translate this here as there is no God for me. So, so it's not just a fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's a personal turn here. There is no God for me. Now, I would argue that there's plain evidence that there is a God, evidence in both creation and human conscience, which we referred to repeatedly in this study. And the fact that some insist on denying the existence of God, if in fact God does exist, in no way uh, erases God from the universe. So in other words, what I believe or what you believe ultimately is irrelevant as it relates to who God is. Either he is or he's not. And if he is, we got to deal with him because he's going to deal with us. And the focus here is that the fool denies what is plainly evident, believes in an effect without a cause, denies moral authority, and refuses to be persuaded by plausible arguments. Now, the idea behind naturalism dates back to ancient times. But it really gave rise in the 17th and the 18th century when philosophers proposed what they thought were new ways of understanding reality that, that sort of pushed God out of the picture or to the margins at least. And as evolution specifically advanced as a theory of origins, uh, the worldview of naturalism also began to be applied to other areas, including law and psychology and sociology and anthropology. I mean, it has ripple effects throughout all of these ways of thinking. And philosophies like naturalism develop over time through people who intellectually uh, are intelligent, who can make arguments, who can bring philosophical ideas. Uh, but there's much more going on here because what's happened is ultimately spiritual and not just logical or illogical arguments. So in intellectual terms, it goes something like this. In theism, God is the infinite personal creator and sustainer of the cosmos. In deism, God is reduced. He begins to lose his personality, even though he remains like the big picture creator. He loses uh, his existence in the sense of he's nothing more than the sustainer of the cosmos. He's not actually imminently involved in people's lives. In naturalism, God is further reduced and he loses his very existence, at, at least theoretically. And there is no God in naturalism and then there is no need for a God. 
William Provine, was a late, uh, who was a late atheist, was an evolutionary professor of history and biology at Cornell University. And he said this. He said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purpose, no goal-directed force of any king. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead, and that'll be the end for me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics. There's no ultimate meaning to life, and there's no free will for humans either. That is a futile way of thinking. It's a hopeless way of thinking. But this is the end result of this way of thinking. Naturalism is extremely popular in the academy and educational circles. Um, And it's actually been referred to as contemporary academic orthodoxy. And it's seen in more contemporary books, like the book that Richard Dawkins wrote on the blind watchmaker, or Daniel Dennett's uh, book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea and Others. Now, one of the things I want to caution you on is that naturalism likes to cloak itself uh, in science, as if science supports naturalism to the point that it's observable, repeatable, and verifiable. That is not the case. But it endorses, underwrites, and implies that somehow this is the way and it's the only rational way. And some of the major belief systems of the world that are also in error have actually come from some form of naturalism. So, for example, uh, nihilism, existentialism, uh, New Age to a point, although New Age has a much more uh, spiritual bent to it and not an anti-supernatural bent. Secular humanism, which is very dominant in our culture. Uh, positivism, also called scientism. Atheism, which is belief there is no God. That's uh, Psalm 14 and verse 1. Agnosticism, when you don't really know what you believe, but you're questioning it. Um, skepticism and a lot of the things in postmodernism that, that we witness. Now, admittedly, each of these takes off in its own direction and comes to slightly different conclusions about how the universe operates, but naturalism is the, is the basic starting point. So I'm going to ask and answer some questions, and these questions that I'm going to ask and answer parallel the questions we've been asking and identifying in developing a biblical worldview. So it'll sound familiar, but it won't be exactly in the template. Number one, what is the nature of ultimate reality according to naturalism? The answer is the only thing that exists is matter, which is evolving and eternal. Second, what is the nature of material reality? Matter is eternal, according to naturalism, and everything that currently exists is the result of some operation of a natural law, not a supernatural law. Question number three, what is a human being? The answer to naturalism is that human beings are nothing more than complex biological machines that have evolved to a level which allows for self-awareness. Question number four, what happens to a person at death? According to naturalism, at death, The individual life form simply ceases to exist. Question number five, why is it possible to know uh, anything at all? The answer to naturalism is that knowledge is a chance happening resulting from a high level of evolution of the human brain. And then question number six, how do we know right and wrong? 
The answer to naturalism is that morality is decided by individuals or social groups. And it is primarily based on what is most important for the survival of the species. And then finally, question number seven, what is the meaning of human history? And the answer to that, according to naturalism, is that human history is a progression of events without any special meaning. So you can see how each of these are the opposite, basically, of the biblical worldview. And if our universe is a closed system, then nothing from without, such as a higher power, could possibly rearrange the structure. Evolutionary naturalism specifically is based on Charles Darwin's uh, hypothesis of natural selection. And it holds that the human condition emerged from the scientific enlightenment. So there are four essential elements in, in Darwin's theory. Now, there are continual slight variations in inheritance and multiplication of organisms and struggle for existence and all these things, but the basic principles still apply. And the orthodox explanation of what is wrong with uh, creationism goes something like this, according to evolutionary naturalism. Science has accumulated overwhelming evidence for evolution. And although there are controversies among scientists, this is another thing they'll try to convince you of believing that there's this uniformity of scientists. Well, there's not. And for one, there's a whole lot of people who are followers of Christ who are scientists who don't believe any of that. And there's not a consistency in any of it, but that's what they want you to believe. And that Darwin's particular theory um, is the fact of evolution. And the only people who reject the facts that they present are what they refer to as biblical fundamentalists. If you didn't know, that'd be us, um, if, if you actually believe the scripture. So what are the practical implications of, of naturalism? Well, since there's this idea that there's no ultimate moral purpose of meaning in anything, it's simply up to the creatures whose contemplations are according to their whims and up to this point in evolutionary history, only the human animal has evolved to a particular point that we have these abilities to process this information and everything. But meaning is subjective at best, and the individual in the system is free to become their own god and create their own morality and their own meaning. Now, you need to understand that naturalism is not an abstract philosophical concept. It is very much a religious dogma in the sense of where the trust is being placed and what ultimate views are about reality. Now, obviously, it's totally opposite of what our understanding of Christianity is, but it's very much a, a system of belief because it takes more faith to actually believe it than it does to believe the biblical narrative. And this has all sorts of implications. It has implications about how we value life, our concern and love for people. Um, and we've seen the epidemic and continue to see the epidemic of uh, suicide in this country. I just actually read a tweet when I was on the way in here from a friend of mine who had put some recent statistics out about 100,000 people a year, somewhere in that range, are taking their own lives in the U.S., you say, well, how can we get to that point? Well, if life is hopeless and meaningless, and when you're dead, you're just dead, if that's the mindset, 
then there's not a whole lot stopping somebody. But if a person sees that their life is valuable, that they're incredibly valuable to the creator who made them, and that no matter what your circumstance or situation in life is, God cares about you and he knows you and he wants you to know him, then that changes everything. Because now you see your inherent worth because you've been created in the image of God. And there's a God who loves you. He redeems you through his son. And he wants you to flourish in his kingdom. There are other issues, whether it be human sexuality or personal ethics. This has to do with uh, even like in the workplace. If it's every man for himself and a survival of the fittest, then why am I going to be looking out for my neighbor and loving my neighbor as myself? I'm going to be getting mine regardless of what it costs somebody else. So there's ethical implications to this. There's physical health issues. We see this in the, in the addictions and the hopelessness that comes with a lot of that. And we know that God can set us free from whatever it might be that, that binds us up. Um, it could be relationship issues. It has to do with uh, church state issues. And I would remind you that our Constitution in this country supports freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. And I don't know how closely any of you follow the news, but there was a, a quote-unquote news article on WSAZ today that acted as though this was news. And it was a report about there's going to be a Bible study club started at South Charleston High School. Like, this is controversial. Folks, this is not controversial. There's freedom of religion in this country. And if, and if you let a key club meet, then you've got to let the Christian people meet. And whatever the particular uh, group might be, and there would be guidelines for that school to school as far as sponsors and things that the, school was, that the article was talking about. But I read the article, and I'm like, what? Why is, this, why is this news? It's not news. It's a free country. It, it's not anything controversial at all. But yet if you believe that there is no God or that he can't be known, then certainly it might be news. And I tell you that the, the best answers to life's questions are found in the Bible and in the biblical worldview. And God's perspective is that the earth is not the end. It's a declaration of God's power, his mystery, his glory. But there's something more coming. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. There's a heaven and there's a hell. We don't end here. We are temporary residents of this earth. And the only hope for any of us is to trust in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the only way for hope. And while naturalism has bombarded uh, academic circles and and many people's ways of thinking, and while it's very popular in a lot of circles, um, it's empty ultimately. And I would argue as well, and this is a different subject for a different lesson, but I think that a lot of what has taken rise in so-called churches, some churches, in the way of Protestant liberalism, is not a whole lot different from naturalism. Because the focus is on man. We get to set the rules on the morality because we get to determine which part of the Bible is true and which is not. Because remember, 
There's some people who are just smarter. They know better than God, so there's certain sections in the Bible that say, eh, yeah, that, we don't have to adhere to that. We don't have to pay attention to that. And all of a sudden, man becomes the authority rather than God being the authority. And I'm going to tell you, when we're the authority, all sorts of problems follow. And I want to compare in closing uh, in contrast between theism and naturalism because I'm running short on time. And here's a, a few comparisons that I think will help you just in summary. There is an eternal God to whom all limited or finite things are dependent in some way. That's monotheism. That's the biblical worldview. Naturalism, there's no God or a need for a God. The supernatural is a reality in monotheism and a biblical narrative. Naturalism, there is no supernatural. There is a heaven and a hell beyond this life in biblical theism, biblical worldview, monotheism. But then I quote from the late Carl Sagan, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory or a falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. So basically he's just saying he don't know. But as I've said through the years, he knows now. Every human being will stand before God in judgment. That's the Bible. Naturalism says there is no ultimate accountability. You see why there's chaos when there's no ultimate accountability. You can take mobs into stores and clean them out. Just bust the doors down. Go get it. You want to beat people because they don't agree with your way of thinking? Just drag them out of their car and beat them in the street. These are the things that come from this way of thinking when there's no accountability. And that is a major problem for a society. A society can't sustain that long term because it's anarchy. And then the last comparison contrast is that the ultimate purpose of people is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. That's your purpose if you're a believer. Versus the ultimate purpose of people is to get what you want and to achieve your goals. So here's my concluding statement, and it's on your outline as well. We are dependent on God for life, sustenance, salvation, purpose, forgiveness, and eternity. And a life without God is meaningless and it's futile. So I encourage you in this as we come toward a close. At the beginning of our service tonight, we were able to joyfully witness believer's baptism. And in that believer's baptism, our sister professed her faith in Christ and identified publicly with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and followed Jesus obediently in baptism. Baptism did not save her. Baptism was a public demonstration of the fact that she's already trusted in Christ. It's the same with us. So before us are decisions to be made. Either we believe what the Bible says and accept it on faith, and we believe in the Christian gospel that God sent his only son to live and to die and to now live again. And the Bible says if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. So it's accepting the gift of eternal life, accepting the gospel, being forgiven, 
entering into a relationship with God, following Jesus as a disciple, having a purpose on this life, and knowing that this life is not all there is. That's the first and the best and the true option. And there's everything else, including naturalism, pantheism, polytheism, all the other isms. But all the isms are going to lead you to a dead end if it's not theism, monotheism specifically, and the God of Scripture. So I don't know what you believe. I don't know what you really think tonight. But I simply say to you, consider what I've shared from Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 14. And think about your life and meaning and purpose and destiny. And think about what God is offering. And if it's true, and I believe it is, eternity hangs in the balance. Eternity hangs in the balance. Think about it. Eternity. But our eternity can be secure if we're in Christ. And that's good news. Father, we thank you tonight that we can come together around your word, be reminded of who you are, what you've done, the way that you have made for us in your son Jesus. I pray for every single person here tonight that we would think about these things and about these ultimate realities. Ultimately, that's what our study of a biblical worldview should cause us to do, to compare and contrast what we believe with what is presented in the word. And I pray that we all would understand that there is more and that that would give us hope. In a world that is dark and hopeless in many ways, we would know that there's a God who loves us and who gave his only son for us. And I pray that we would honor him and follow him with our lives. Thank you for this blessing we've had to be here this evening. Pray you bless the remainder of this week. We look forward to gathering back together in worship, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.